Today, we are talking to an exceptional therapist. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I'm here with Kat. And today we have a special guest, Miranda, who is a child therapist. Welcome, Miranda. Thank you for having me. So, Miranda, let me ask you a very serious question. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? Well, I'd normally say the chai latte, either hot or cold, depending on the weather. But I am rocking a matcha latte today. Oh, both are my two favorite choices. What I generally do is go for months drinking just one of them, and then I get sick of it and switch to the other one. I've been on a pretty long chai run though. Miranda, what was your first experience with foster care? So growing up, I don't think I really remember any foster kids as far as having um, anybody at my school or friends that were foster kids. As I got older, I think into high school through some of the volunteer opportunities through my church, I found out about foster care and I really didn't even start working with foster youth until I became a clinician as a therapist. What drove your decision to work with kids as a therapist? So I got an internship in in my uh, last semester of graduate school to work for the local CAC in my area. And through them, obviously, we serve a lot of foster youth. And so that was my first experience. But trauma is something I've always been interested in, always wanted to work with. So that was kind of how I got introduced. And I've been there basically ever since. Just for anybody who doesn't know, can you tell us what the CAC is? Yeah. So Children's Advocacy Center is CAC. They are a national organization. They are also in every state. So in Florida, I think there are like 20 or 30 of them. So I work for the local one in our county. Mm-hmm. And there's a variety of different people that work at a CAC besides possibly clinicians. Clinicians don't work at every CAC, but they do at ours in our county. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what your current position is and what it entails? Sure. So I am a trauma therapist with my local CAC. I'm also a licensed mental health counselor. So I'm licensed in the state of Florida to provide psychotherapy services. So inside of my job at the CAC, I work with children anywhere from ages of about 3 to 18, typically. Those are the children that are receiving the trauma therapy directly. And then I also provide therapeutic services in the form of psychoeducational support, which is just basically a lot of information for parents that are considered non-offending parents. We also do therapeutic
therapeutic visitation as court-ordered. We do court-ordered assessments, including trauma assessments, sexual abuse evaluations, and protective capacities assessments. So my day is a little unusual day-to-day. Normally have therapy sessions, but then there's a lot of other types of um, case management type tasks and evaluations and reports that we're writing as well. Yeah, and I will I will say as someone who has had kids that made use of your expertise and services, I feel like what you guys do over there, I mean, it's a world apart from most of the therapy services that are offered to um, foster kids that have been in my home. The level of, I don't know if it's the types of therapy that you guys use or your passion for these kids and helping them get to a better place, but I'm a huge fan. Can you explain the differences between trauma-informed therapy and specialized therapy? So following up from your statement that I work with an amazing group of colleagues that we all have a passion for what we do. We love this. If people were in it for the money, obviously it wouldn't last because (laughs) even as therapists with master's degrees, we're not necessarily raking in the dough, Um, but we love what we do and we're very passionate about the work that we do. And part of that, I think that other people see is because of our level of expertise. So that gets into the difference between trauma-informed therapy services and specialized trauma treatment. So where we educate the community and our families about the services we provide specifically to trauma is that we utilize evidence-based practices. So these are therapy treatment models that have a lot of research behind them that have shown to be efficacious or proven to work with kids in that age group um, of whoever we're serving. So these may be things like trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, child-parent psychotherapy, and there are plenty other models as well. Those are models that we have all been highly trained in. So most of us have certifications. We all have several additional trainings, and some of those trainings are over a year long where you have to do learning collaboratives and you have to do consultations calls in order to reach that level of expertise. Um, So as part of therapy, what we do is we use those models as closely as possible while making accommodations for the individual child that kind of fits their needs. Can you share a little bit about like the main types of therapies that you use and and what they are? At the CAC, the referrals that we typically get are from Child Protective Services. We get referrals from the court. We get referrals from law enforcement. um, And then we also get referrals from people in the community, such as pediatricians or teachers, schools. So we typically get referrals from those people. And what happens is, is they typically refer cases to us because the child or children have been found to have experienced abuse. And those abuses that we treat are primarily sexual abuse, physical abuse. We do treat children with other trauma who've had exposure to domestic violence. That's been pretty severe. If they've witnessed or been around a suicide or a homicide, things like that that are pretty significant. When treating those children specifically, we utilize certain models that fit with that population in their age range. So those are things typically like trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which is probably the most researched trauma treatment that's out there currently. Um, And then we can also utilize um, things like ART, which is accelerated resolution therapy, as well as EMDR, which is um, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Mm -hmm. So those are treatments that we can kind of incorporate into the larger treatment 
treatment of what we're doing with our kids, but it gets more directly at the trauma at a little bit deeper level. Most kids who are in care have experienced trauma, um, such as drug exposure, neglect, abuse. So in your opinion, how does that trauma affect their mental health based on your experience? I think it has to be said that every child is affected by things a little bit differently, right? Mm -hmm. We know that there are ACEs scores. We know that a lot of our kids in care have experienced many traumas. And sometimes even at the very least, they've been removed from their parents, right? Which has brought them into foster care. Um, So what's important is, you know, we believe that there has to be a comprehensive trauma assessment to really understand the specific impact on that child, that it could be some neurobiological stuff. There could be some physical symptoms. There could be other emotional or mental health symptoms. Um, So all of that really needs further evaluation. And we use um, standardized assessment tools that have been researched again. So that way we can kind of come up with an exact approximation of like an appropriate diagnosis and we can identify the right treatment modality. But what we notice typically with our kids is they will have emotional symptoms, things like depressive symptoms, anxiety. They may have issues with anger or how they express anger. So that may come up behaviorally inside Mm -hmm. their placement as well as inside the school. And for most of our kids, the things that aren't really seen by I think the people that know and love them is a lot of our kids have distorted thinking patterns. They have a lot of cognitive challenges where they tend to blame themselves or have a lot of responsibility and shame about the things that they've experienced at the hands of others. As a foster parent, sometimes when I talk to new foster parents, especially, I think the thing that surprises them the most is some of the behaviors that they see. And sometimes these are just normal kid behaviors that any kid who hasn't had trauma would be displaying these behaviors as well. And as we all know, behaviors, it's not really the kid trying to like get under your skin. It's a child trying to communicate what they need and what they're struggling with. So I think one of the things that I see a lot when I talk to other foster parents is just trying to understand the behaviors. Can you shed some light on how these behaviors are a result from their trauma? So I think you brought up a couple of different points that are really important to address. One being that people who are kind of newly into fostering or other people in the system that may not have as much experience or exposure or as much training in trauma, it's very easy to see these behaviors, right? And to see all these other things that need to be addressed that are on the surface, right? But what we know about trauma is obviously there are deeper roots there, that there are things that have kind of taken root that typically are rooted in things like shame and blame that can then manifest into sets of behaviors, right? And these are self-protective behaviors typically for our kids. They're barriers, they're behaviors that create walls or kind of like a shield for kids to either avoid what they believe is going to be further harm, embarrassment, shame, rejection, abandonment, all of those issues that are typically big insecurities for our kids. Um, One of the things that we do in trauma treatment, which is a big component of trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy is we provide a lot of psychoeducation to our parents and even our case managers and other support people that are on the case, including guardian ad litems or other family members, even biological family if they're involved, still with visitation, things like that, because we want them to understand um, how trauma works, how trauma affects the brain. And these behaviors they're experiencing, which are very disruptive, they don't feel good. They can kind of create barriers in a relationship, but that they're self-protective behaviors most of the time, that they are a way that the child is communicating something they need or something they're afraid of, but obviously not in a very clear way. I love how you describe that because I think so many of the people that want to help were people who were also hurt too. Mm -hmm. And then when they get in the thick of it and they have a child who is displaying so many of these behaviors and all they want to have done is to have helped, they sometimes they also get 
triggered and they feel sometimes like the child's behavior or misbehavior is a reflection on them Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to not get caught up in this cycle of you know I should have done better or look what's happening I I wasn't able to help this child or I wasn't able to fix this child and when truly the child is they look amazing (laughs) you know (laughs) they you know they have beautiful hair and skin and they're bathed and they have a wardrobe full of clothing and they sleep well at night and they have a secure base from which to return after they have this horrible temper tantrum they have a person who they are safe with and um but I feel like I see adults who struggle with with these behaviors you know almost like it's a reflection on me Mm -hmm. and it's really hard for us to not internalize that sometimes and I I feel like that's their struggle for me to help people realize it's not a reflection you're just a safe person for them right and we do you know we remind our caregivers of that all the time you know like I use the mantra all the time you know hurt people hurt people kids that are hurting they react sometimes with hurtful behaviors because sometimes that's the only thing that makes sense other times that is their form of defense or that is their you know sword and shield to kind of protect themselves out in the world where they've been pretty alone so we always tell our parents and typically you know there's a lot of relationship building that takes place with our foster parents and our caregivers um, because we need them to be on team child right we need everybody oh, to be I on the same that. team, team child. Yeah. I'm use that. I'm so sorry I'm stealing it you totally can. <laughs> can so once we have that relationship established it's really nice to be able to have you know that connection with a foster parent where we can say hey this isn't actually about you don't take it personally it's really not about you like (laughs) this started so far before you Uh but you are the safe place for this child to actually be angry you are safe enough for this Mm -hmm. child to not be okay and they're not going to lose everything they know that yeah yeah and it's so true and it's so important to remember who it's about in any parent child or any adult child relationship who is who is this about right now Mm mm-hmm It's funny because I think that most of what I know about parenting kids who've been through trauma have come from, you know, a variety of places. But Miranda is a huge source of that. And I feel like every time I have a kid with her, it's an opportunity for me to learn and learn about this child and learn more tools about how to help not just this kid in my house, but other kids in my house. I've worked with other therapy agencies and they come in and they sit on the couch with a child and they ask them a couple questions about their week and then they leave. But I'm left with like, uh, what do I do? Like, how? am I going to help her with what she's struggling in? And whereas when I have brought kids to Miranda, it's like, we're a team. We work together to try and help this child. She asks me questions. She gives me advice. It's like, we're all on team child. child. You're team child. I love that. But between, I think that learning from Miranda, but also the circle of security class that I've taken a couple times, Mm -hmm. which I'm a huge fan of. I feel like all foster parents should take that because it was so eye-opening for me. The beginning of it, you do this evaluation where you kind of discover what emotions you have trouble processing. And it's really based on what you were taught was safe feelings and what you were taught Mm -hmm. wasn't safe feelings. And it's not that your parents did anything wrong, but your parents may have not been comfortable with shame or with sadness or with joy. And then because nobody taught you how to process that and express those emotions, it was mind blowing for me when I realized that saying don't cry to someone was not a good thing. My whole life, like I thought like, oh, don't cry, feel better. 
here. That's so dismissive. And I never knew until I took Circle of Security because I thought that's what you say. When someone's crying, you say, oh, don't cry. Why do we go our whole life saying that, thinking that's okay? Because it is so dismissive. Your emotions aren't important. Don't cry. So now, like, because of my experience with Miranda and because of my experience with Circle of Security, I think the thing that I try and focus on when a kid is feeling a certain kind of way is A, keeping them and everybody else safe and B, letting them know it's okay to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And I can even remember having one particular kid with Miranda where he had a lot of anger and, you know, he would just blow up with seemingly no trigger. I'm sure there were triggers, but, you know, it would seem to come out of nowhere. And I just remember her saying all the time, like, we can't hurt people and we can't break things, but it's totally okay to feel the way you're feeling. And we understand, you know, I had someone ask me recently, like, how do you stay calm when that kid is doing that? And I think it's a lot about letting them feel that way and not taking it personal. And I can recognize now that I am a different parent today than I was six years ago, Mm -hmm. because last night when this child who has recently come to my house was hysterically crying that he missed his mom and he can't believe this happened again. Six years ago, I would have sat and said, oh, don't cry. Don't cry. Here, you want to bake cookies? Don't cry. Like, you're okay. But instead, like I sat with him and I put my arm around him and I hugged him and I told him it was okay to cry. And if he kept crying, that was good. It would help him feel better. And that if he wanted to talk about anything, he could. After a couple of minutes of crying, he just stood up and was like, okay. And then a couple of minutes later, he came over and he's like, hey, can I watch a movie? And I put on a movie for him. Just sitting here now reflecting on that, that is not who I would have been before because my whole life I thought when someone said, you say don't cry and you distract them. But that's not what we need to do no. with our kids. We need to teach them that it's okay to be sad. You should be freaking sad. You just lost your mom, dude. Like, you don't get to live with her now. And because he's been in foster care before, he knows he this totally is not knows. something he's going back to tomorrow. Yeah. Well, and can I just say two things? One, I was on the phone with you and that happened. Yeah. And I remember thinking, wow, you handled that really well. Oh, thank you. You were really... Well, thank Miranda and thank yourself um, <laughs> and thank Circle of Security. Um, because you handled it, like, um, really calmly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not that I thought you would handle it any other way, but I probably would have been a little bit like, oh, you know, yeah, because um, it's not my own child. But you've been doing this a long time. You've had 70. And also, I'm just so proud to be on hashtag team child. With you. Hashtag team child. I'm looking at short. <laughs> <laughs> and I we need a kid. hashtag team child but shirt you know now. What? There's a third thing. I was just thinking about how my own kids are so different than how I was as a child. Like, they're so aware. They're so aware. And if I was like, I don't know, if my onion was the size of a townhouse when I got to adulthood, their onions, you know, their layers are going to be much smaller. That's for sure. Because one of the myths I had was that you ever get to, <laughs> that you ever peel away all the layers of an onion. They're so much more self-aware than I ever was. And they get all my instant reactions. They get the worst of me for sure. Because they get me when I'm hungry and tired and thirsty and irritated and all of those things. And they're all I mean, they're so much more aware, They, which is incredible. And so I'll be interested to see how the next generation of kids that is coming into the world will be. And I'm very proud of all of them. Yeah. Yeah. We, we love Circle of Security. Um, <laughs> we love that our parents have done that. Um, and a lot of our foster parents know about it. And if they don't have the opportunity to take the class, we encourage them to buy the book or to look at the book. Or at least I do. Let me say as a clinician, I recommend it. Um, and I know for myself that that has been instrumental in helping me parent better because now I know my shark music, right? Yeah. I know my triggers. <laughs> 
I know the things that make it hard for me. Um, and so thankfully I have somebody that can tag team with me, um, you know, or I can take my little timeouts, take my moments, and then I can come back and be with my child and remember that I can be with them without having to be in it with them. I can let them have their moment and just be there as a safe support. So it's hugely helpful for our families. And uh-huh. that's one of the things that, you know, TFCBT also um, provides for our families is once we go through that psychoeducation process with our children to help them give words to what they've experienced, to what they're feeling. We normalize that experience uh-huh. for them. And we're giving the psychoeducation to our caregivers to say, hey, this is this is trauma. This is child abuse. This is how children react to those things. We get to then move into some behavior management. Now, that is not the focus of trauma therapy services, but there is a component there that helps caregivers feel light when you're dealing with really challenging behaviors, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, uh-huh. right? That there are some concrete strategies you you can use so that you're not thinking about breaking down placement, right? You're not thinking of adding to, you know, further trauma to this child's life. Um, And children can understand that children appreciate the fact that when I sit in therapy and I talk to them about the behavior management piece of all this, they appreciate structure. They like knowing in this foster home what's expected of them. Are they allowed to do A, B, and C or not? Um, Because maybe that has been different from their previous home. So we are pretty proactive in coming up with like family rules and boundaries and privacy privacy areas so that our kids know exactly what they can do and what they can't do. And then talking about appropriate forms of consequences and discipline and incentives for proactive behavior, things like that, so that they can kind of understand, okay, if if these rules are violated, what's going to happen next? Because a lot of discipline or a lot of behavior was very unpredictable before in their life. And at least this has predictability to it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that I try and do when kids come into my house is look for opportunities to verbalize that they're safe and that we don't, there's no hitting or hurting people in our house. In many cases, kids have either seen their parents hurt each other or they've been hurt by their parents. So I don't know, this might be stupid and maybe I should be doing it more direct. And, you know, you guys can tell me if I'm failing this. But one of the things I do is I look for that opportunity when my kids are playing. So this morning, my my oldest son is very excited to have some older kids around the house right now. So he's very excited, but he's running around and like wrestling with people and tagging them and like just being silly and definitely a little extra hyper. And so little Jack was laying across my kitchen island while I was cooking the kids breakfast this morning. Jack Jr. walked over to him and started doing bongo drums on his butt (laughs) and they were being silly and we were all laughing. The two new placements were standing right there laughing along with us. And then Jack Jr. got a little hyper and little Jack was like starting to not like it. So I use that opportunity to be like, okay, Jack Jr., calm down. We don't hit here. Like nobody hits, nobody gets hurt here. And, you know, maybe I should be more direct with kids when they come in and be like, hey, nobody's going to hurt you. But I feel like it's different when it's used in example like that. It's not like an intimidating, like sit down and I'm going to tell you, you don't hit anybody and nobody hits you and da, 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 da. Yeah, I think that's great because it's Mm multi-sensory and kids learn best through play, especially before they're seven. Yeah. So these kids have been here less than 48 hours. And I think I've found four different times where I could insert that and yeah. and mostly with the toddlers because toddlers put their hands on each other and and I've been able to say multiple times remember baby Jack we don't hit in this house nobody gets hurt in this house so I've been trying to say it over and over so that that's clear to them and actually another opportunity I had for that this morning is that the younger of these new placements is terrified of my dog my dog is very sweet and wouldn't hurt a fly but every time this dog is in the room he jumps up and this is actually how my kids were on my kitchen island this morning because this kid keeps jumping up on the counter anytime the dog walks in the room and he's terrified and he was uh, squealing
chilling up on the island this morning and freaked out. So I used that opportunity and I walked over to him and I said, hey, buddy, do you know why you're here? And he looked at me and he's all scared and he's like, no. And I'm like, you're here so I can keep you safe for right now. Okay. so do you think I'm going to let that dog hurt you? And he's like, no, shakes his head. No. And then he smiled and I'm like, can I hug you? And he says, yeah. So I gave him a big hug and I'm like, remember, you're going to be safe here. I'm that's my whole job is to keep you safe. So I'm not going to let the dog hurt you. Granted, he's still terrified of the dog, but I always try and look for those opportunities when a placement comes new to speak that into them that they're safe here Mm -hmm. and that nobody's going to hit them here. But also, I don't want you hitting anybody here. We always encourage our parents to say those things in the positive too. tell the kids what is expected, what you can do, what you are looking for rather than the don't stop. You know, all those words that we like to use a lot Mm -hmm. as parents. And you know what? This is why we need each other, because there was a time recently when I did some art with a child and kind of segued that into some conduct kind of stuff and it backfired. And so, you know, sometimes we need those reminders and we're going to have to try to do that. You work for the county's Children Advocacy Center. What is the role of the Children's Advocacy Center in the dependency system? So there's different parts of the CAC, which is really neat. So in our um, CAC, in our county, we have our child protection team who are a very important function within the dependency system. So the child protection team, they get called and consulted by statute. They have to be called and consulted on certain types of cases um, involving certain types of children. So there are additional programs under the CAC. So like at RCAC, there's the child protection team, but then there's also the trauma treatment team, which I'm included in, which we have about eight clinicians on our staff and a clinical director. And then there's also, we have um, a prevention or early intervention team, which is healthy families that are part of our team. So basically we are available to support our families anywhere from pregnancy, newborns, in that prevention, early intervention of helping to make sure kids don't get removed, that kids are getting all their needs met um, before there would be child protective services involvement until, you know, even if there is child protective services involvement and there is removal, then we are providing those services once they're in care. That's amazing. I'm so impressed by what this organization does. I wish that every kid that came into care could experience it because pretty much they all need it. So tell us how therapy can heal trauma. So one of the things I think, you know, research has shown is nothing comes close to the therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. The therapeutic relationship is primary, you know, and helping to be an agency for change. Mm -hmm. Um, Kids have to feel safe to do the work that we're asking them to do. Um, We're asking kids to go into the deepest, darkest parts of their lives Mm -hmm. to not only think of those things, to some degree experience those things again and feeling and in body sensation sometimes. But then we're helping them, you know, through that relationship um, to kind of look at some of those areas in their life where they are holding on to pieces of that where they are um, kind of getting stuck. And so we help them. But one of the analogies I kind of like to use is that, you know, I think sometimes people can think that therapists are kind of the healers in, in this whole process. But I like to think that we're just the helpers, you know, that our kids, we kind of tap into kids natural resilience. So we kind of just notice for them the things that are already helping them to survive. Right. If they're coming to my therapy session, they're here, they're alive, they survived. Yeah. Right. And we celebrate all those 
things that help them survive, that help them get through it. We recognize all those strengths. We use those strengths to our advantage. And then we just kind of gently help them along that path of recognizing those things that are still holding them, you know, stuck. Could be thinking patterns. It could be behavioral patterns that are jeopardizing placement, that are getting them kicked out of schools, that are not allowing them to do sports or extracurriculars to earn friends. Um, So we're just kind of helping them to notice those things. And realistically, um, you know, a big part of trauma therapy that I don't think people think is really important is grief. There's a lot of grief and loss work that happens in trauma therapy, um, especially for our adolescents and older teenagers. Um, some of them are grieving the children, like basically the childhoods they never got. You know, they're, they're grieving that they didn't get the mother or father or the family system that they wanted or that they needed. And, you know, coming to a place of acceptance that their parents may have given them only what they could based on their parents' trauma history and the generational patterns that were passed down of parenting and substance abuse or things like that. And that, you know, they have to grieve that that was what they got, that that doesn't have to be their future, um, but kind of that those periods of their life are over with. Mm -hmm. And that's not always, that doesn't feel good. It's not easy in therapy. This is where I wanted to ask you about, like, that there's hope for kids in care. Part of helping to instill hope in kids going through this process is, um, you know, that that's in part what their treatment plan is for, right? We're letting them know at the end of treatment the things that are going to be different, the things that might be better, or the bad things that are there, that how they will decrease or go away. Because um, kids are really active in making their treatment plan, which is just basically what are we going to do while you're in therapy and addressing, you know, hope for our families and hope for our kids. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things that we have to let our kids know at the very beginning of treatment. We have to let them know that there's hope, that things are going to get better, that things can be different. And that's why kids are so instrumental in developing their plan of care, their, their treatment plan, um, so that they can see by the end of therapy what's going to be different. How might I feel, think, or act differently? Our caregivers are an active piece of that. So when we're doing treatment planning, you know, our caregivers are providing input about the things that they would like to see change. And sometimes those things are incorporated. Sometimes they can't be because of caregiver expectation, but we try to kind of involve those as much as possible. And then we're always just providing, you know, through that psychoeducation process throughout treatment, we're always letting our caregivers know how the child is progressing, how the child is moving along. So even if it doesn't quite fit with the expectation of, you know, I was hoping that the tantrums would completely go away. Well, you know, coming down from five a day to one a day is pretty substantial. And maybe that one a day tantrum is still really necessary. Maybe that is their moment to just kind of be and unwind and just have that space to vent. Um, so we're helping to kind of help them with their expectations all along the way so that they can know that our kids can overcome these things. Um, and for most of our kids, the things that we really touch on for hope for them is that for most of our kids, this is generational. These are things they've experienced. These are things their cousins, their aunts and uncles, their grandparents, their great grandparents have experienced. And for a lot of them, they express the desire to want to be different, to be chain breakers, to be different for the next generation. They don't want their kids to know what foster care is. They don't want their kids to know what child protective services is. And so it's helping them through their treatment plan to kind of realize that they are getting the emotional regulation skills. They are getting the self-protection skills in order to make sure that they are making these healthy and safe decisions that are going to prevent further involvement with child protective services or with law enforcement 
investment in the future. You know, we talk about resilience as far as like a therapeutic term of hope, right? Because there's this thing that we can actually talk about and we can measure and we can understand and we can actually skill build towards resilience, um, which can be tied to hope. I feel like these systems of kids in care and providing therapy to kids who are in care and they have active cases are like baking a cake and adding ingredients while they're baking. I mean, it's so complicated and there's so many pieces and so many dominoes that are falling. I mean, there is a lot of hope. Some have just an amazing capacity for sure. resilience, which is so admirable considering how much I fall apart personally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jack yeah. could tell you. I mean, and I sometimes I look at these kids and know what they've gone through and think, how are you waking up in the morning? Because if I went through that, I don't know that I could. And mm -hmm. so the resilience of kids is incredible. I feel like especially a lot of kids who've been in foster care for a while start to begrudge therapy and feel like it's never going to work for them. And sometimes that's because they don't have the right expectations of what they're going to get out of therapy. Like therapy is not going to make your parents change, sure. especially if they're uninvolved in the therapy. Mm -hmm. Therapy is not going to make all your problems go away. Therapy is going to teach you how to handle what comes your way and how to process that. And therapy doesn't work overnight. Therapy takes a long time to understand how you're responding and to be able to learn how to change your response or handle your response better. And I think that a lot of foster kids, like they've been through therapy, they're like, it doesn't work. I'm not doing it again. Or I didn't like my therapist. I'm not doing it again. Sometimes it just means trying a different therapist. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it means trying a different well, model. Is yeah. that the word? And I think, to be honest, the kids that I have worked with, the complaints that I hear most often are, I my therapist got changed all the time, yeah. very quickly and without notice. So there wasn't a goodbye. There wasn't termination. There wasn't a discussion about transitioning care. They're also not necessarily getting specialized therapy. So kids don't even know why they're there and what they're supposed to be getting out of it. You know, we call these in therapy the crisis of the week, right? If we're addressing the crisis of the week every week, we might be helping kids analyze the recent thing that just happened to them and to develop the skills, but realistically they're not making long-term change. Mm -hmm. You know, we're kind of after the fact looking at like the fire that was just there, right? right. Talking about it, but we're not giving them the skills to prevent the next fire. That's so true. And I know that with one of my children, he's been going to therapy for years. They've never gotten him to share the stuff that he's really struggling with. And we've tried a couple different therapists and the real stuff, like when he sits with me and he shares like his is what's heavy on his heart. That is not something that he ever shares with his therapist. Like when he talks to his therapist, it's like, what upset you this week? Okay, this is what upset me this week. Okay, this is how you can handle it next time. And that's great. And sure, that helps, but it's not helping heal his trauma, yeah. Yeah. which which I really feel like is, you know, what, what I need to be working on with him long-term so he can have healthy relationships as he gets older. Yeah. And I feel like all these little things that they're addressing in therapy, there's a root there that's causing that. It's like watching a tree grow that you don't want and cutting off the branches one by one instead of pulling it up by the yeah. base and the roots. You're totally correct. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he shares those with you is because you value him so much because you are his parent. There are therapeutic um, theories that therapy is like reparenting the person, you know. I mean, I think that everybody in therapy should feel like totally and completely valued, like they're the most important person that you're going to see all day. Mm -hmm. And of course, I think I'm correct, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and but, you know, kids in care, I think that there is a tendency to people are overworked. They are really busy. Everybody has another thing to do. I think that people are treated kind of poorly sometimes. And I think I think sometimes that 
can happen in some of the therapeutic situations too and then with some of the high turnover kind of things that maybe look into some of the specialized therapies make sure they're getting trauma a trauma therapist and and be involved don't like okay therapist is here see you later be involved obviously there's times that they need to talk to the therapist one-on-one and that like that needs to be a safe place for them but you need to be available so that you can engage and help and show that you support that relationship and you know and encourage them about it i've had a lot of kids come that were just i'm not going to therapy it does doesn't work and and you really have to find the right situation for them and encourage them and also temper their expectations like yeah. you're going to go to therapy once you're not going to be a different person tomorrow mm-hmm. but you're going to keep going to therapy like you go to school and you're going to get better and things mm-hmm. are going to improve and I think that's important for foster parents and, and case managers to know like if if you've got a case and this kid doesn't want to go to therapy maybe you just need to try a different type of therapy yeah and sometimes persisting you know um, there are kids that don't want to come they'll try it and they're like I'm done okay you need a break It is hard. And I tell them all. So at my agency, I am known. I love teenagers. I love working with teens. And the more difficult, the better. The more resistant, the better. Um, And it's because I can relate to them on a very different level. I understand how hard, how much is at risk for them to do trauma therapy. When I'm meeting with them, we get to have the conversation of, hey, this is what I do. And this is this is kind of this whole process. And I let them know it may not be the right time for you. It's really hard. If this feels like too hard for you and you don't have the motivation. You're not going to do it. You know, maybe this isn't just the right thing for you right now because trauma work very deep, like deep trauma work is really hard. And I give them that opportunity. I give them the way out of, you know what? It's not for the faint of heart. If you don't feel like you're up for it, I get it. We want to keep that door open for <laughs> you sounds later. Like what I take say. it as a challenge. <laughs> sounds like what I say to my son when he's not behaving. Like, oh, guess you're not a big boy. You don't want to brush your teeth. I never thought of that. You guys are amazing. And, and it's funny because I do it very authentically and I do it very genuinely. Um, I recognize some of the things my kids are having to talk about I wouldn't dare talk to another human it's being about. It's really hard stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that all the time. Yeah. Do I want to talk to people about this? No. Right. The worst, most Not intimate, you know, memories Especially of your life. In, in the situations where maybe in the past you have opened up about it and the response wasn't you a positive or healthy one. Sure. No. Sure. And no. I give kids those opportunities. You know, I, I, I let them know, you know, essentially you're the client, you're the person in the hot seat. Um, and I tell them, you know, therapy is going to work best if you and I can agree on things that you can get out of this. But you and I sitting in a room every week having a therapy session is not going to change your mom. It's not going to change your dad. It's not going to affect all these other things. It's not going to change somebody else's mind. It is going to be the fact that I am going to give you tools. I'm going to give you skills. You're going to walk out of here with a box full of them, you know, literal and and sometimes just obviously an imaginal toolbox of skills. And it's up to you to use them. You know, therapy is not magical in that way. I'm I'm a teacher sometimes and I'm... You're kind of magic. And I've said that before to kids. Like, wait till you meet Miranda. She's magic. I'm not a unicorn. I promise. Not a unicorn. You know, but it's, it's, I'm giving skills and then I'm helping kids to use them, to overcome barriers to using them. If it is systemic or if it is their caregivers or if it is an environment. And then sometimes when they need breaks and, and they need to just back away. I had a kiddo that I'm working with now and she got very triggered by something we were talking about in therapy that had nothing to do with her story, but it was about psychoeducation, about complex trauma and complex PTSD. And she needed to get up and leave the session right away, which my kids are always allowed to do. They know where the 
exit is, they can always safely leave the session. Um, so she eventually took that opportunity to leave the session. She needed a couple weeks off. Parents got very worried that like she was just going to be done. And I said to them, you know, don't worry about it. She needs a break and I'm going to support her in that. Right. So we, we gave her some support. So I told mom and dad, hey, listen, she's not using her spot. Why don't you guys come and we can do some more psychoeducation. We can go over some more skill building and family safety planning while that was happening. Um, and then kiddo eventually wanted her spot back. She didn't like that somebody <laughs> else was taking her spot. She did. She did. And when she came back, we kind of had that conversation of, hey, I know that was hard. You know, we can kind of pace therapy and we can do, you know, kind of titrate therapy services so that it meets them at their place and at their pace. But it was just kind of that reminder if this isn't this isn't for the faint of heart. This isn't easy work. But if you can think of some things that you'd like to get out of this, you know, I tell my kids, if you're willing to jump in the trench, I will I will be there with you and we will walk this thing out till the end. And I think for a lot of kids, that's the part that they are not sure of where their guard comes up is people have made promises to them and let them down. And why tell the hundredth person your story? Oh my not going to be around in that six is months. So true. Yeah. Can you tell us about your best day? There's lots of wins. Wins are as small as that light bulb moment of seeing a kid kind of get a skill in therapy um, or a kid being able to finally do their trauma narrative and tell their trauma story in the safety of the therapy room and all of its complexities. Um, and then there are those bigger, more outward, I guess, wins of, you know, kids being able to go to court and actually testifying against their perpetrator. Um, so those are really big wins. And I've had a couple of those in the last year that have been really exciting of kids that I've worked with for many years off and on who are finally kind of getting their moment in court mm -hmm. and being able to tell their story in a way that is instrumental for, for criminal prosecution, for holding people accountable. Can you tell us about one of your hardest days? Probably when we have advocated for a child at every possible area, every possible turn, and especially when that happens in the dependency court um, hearing and, and they've had reports and we've testified and they still make a decision to change placement or to reunify or to um, shelter children against, you know, our clinical recommendations or against the mm -hmm. things that we're seeing clinically for the child. We're hoping for the best. The analogy that makes sense to me is we're planting seeds, but we don't often get to see what blooms, what buds. And so your hope, you hope you're planting all the right seeds and that they're there and that they'll be nurtured and not wither um, and that they'll bloom in good time. But you don't always get to see that. And that part's really hard. I can empathize with that, I guess, because a lot of times as foster parents, you're trying to reteach behaviors in some ways um, and habits and patterns. And I remember my first case as a foster parent, I had these two little kids and they were part of a specialized court called early childhood court. And they so they received child parent psychotherapy. I hope I'm saying that right. I learned a lot while they were going through that. One of the things I learned is if they've had this done to them five times, you have to do it like 5,000 times the other way to unteach that. And I can't I can't think of like the exact example off the top of my head. But oftentimes as a foster parent, you're trying to help these children grow and be in a better place when they leave than how they came. Often the results are going to be much later. And that I think happens for our kids in so many different ways that it, it may not be that seen or yeah. understood, but they have these, these big moments, these big areas of growth. And it's just hard sometimes because we have to set our expectations of they're not just suddenly doing things that are normal for their age group. They just overcame a huge milestone for themselves, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Or if they had had some delays, they just kind of overcame that. Um, instead of going, okay, well now you're finally caught up. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's yeah. like, no, you just had this huge moment, this huge leap. You finally, you know, the light bulb has come on. The, yeah. the, the skills are sticking. The behaviors are sticking. What do you see as the thing that the system does that is perhaps unintentional, but is the most damaging to the kid's mental health? I'd say in some cases it's testifying when it's not in their best interest to testify. So sometimes therapists have to kind of speak up at those hearings or they get requested to provide testimony um, about the appropriateness and the potential for harm for those children to testify, like especially in front of like parents or people that have hurt them, how kind of psychologically hurtful and harmful that can be. I think other times it's just assuming that they're okay, even if they don't have symptoms and not offering to get them services. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, but really we just want all the wheels to get the oil to kind of have access to therapy services. And I also think wrongly diagnosing kids, that kids are oftentimes either prematurely or sometimes just completely wrongly diagnosed. There's not a lot of differential diagnosis and there's not a lot of time and assessment that goes into that. And because behaviors can be um, attributed to several different types of diagnoses and sometimes the implication of that is a lot of psychotropic medication, we can kind of put kids' brains at a disadvantage when they're trying to develop and grow. For kids, especially with complex trauma, you know, sometimes trauma is the diagnosis. Sometimes, you know, PTSD and complex PTSD is what's going on, that there may not be all these other slew of mental health diagnoses. Um, so I would just say that that's, that's where I've seen that kids can become harmed. Miranda, what is something that you see the system does right to support kids' mental health? I love working with guardian ed litems. I love guardian ed litems on case. I love, too, that they're sometimes assigned to cases, even when there is like relative care, non-relative care that doesn't necessarily call for them, but we can advocate for them so that kids kind of have their person in court, right? Yeah. That they have their own advocate. Um, and I love that in our local area, our court system knows us very well. Our court system very heavily relies on our, our clinical expertise and our clinical recommendations. And a lot of times the right assessments, the right evaluations get court ordered. And then we get to provide recommendations about services. And typically the court does order or, you know, initiate those services for the children to get all the additional services that they might need. Because we know sometimes trauma therapy is not the only thing, right? There may be several resources that kids need. Yeah. I'll tell you, I have seen um, great success in my kids with occupational therapy. I never in a million years would have thought that occupational therapy is so helpful to kids who've had trauma, but I'm, I can't even begin to tell you the difference in little Jack from when he started therapy till now. He used to have tantrums all day long. Uh, he's a completely different child through occupational therapy. So I've definitely seen the positive things. And it goes back to, I think, you know, again, kids having to have a degree of control, having to feel like they have agency. They need agency. So whether it be over their ability to take care of themselves, their ability to accomplish things at school, their ability to regulate their emotions, all of these different people are needed in all these different areas of their lives to help kids be able to have that agency. And back to what you were saying about the courts considering the therapist recommendations. I'm really appreciative of that because I feel like oftentimes in court, many of the people that you would think that should be the person that advocates for the child that everybody's going to listen to, they don't. So I'm really thankful that they do listen to the therapist. That is someone who is knowledgeable and was really going on inside that child's body. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a, a great thing. And I really appreciate how you as a therapist have advocated for your clients. So what do you think some basic things are that parents can do to make your job easier? Like, what are some things they can do to work better with trauma therapists? 
coming to therapy, really important. Um, even with, even if you're going to be a little late, even if you need to reschedule, you know, staying in contact with your therapist, um, coming to appointments as consistently as possible. When even you, if your kids crowd the lobby and make a big scene and yep, bother people. Been there, done that, right? <laughs> yes. Rolling carts around the front yeah, room. Yeah. As long as nobody's getting hurt and we're not getting kicked out of the place or burning anything down. Um, yeah, that we, we need parents to prioritize therapy or we need caregivers to prioritize therapy. When kids see that caregivers prioritize therapy, then they can too. Yeah. When parents do not prioritize it um, and they're showing that they're not very interested, that they don't really want to communicate with the therapist, then that makes our jobs a lot harder. Yeah. Part of TFCBT is having caregiver involvement. That doesn't mean that the caregiver is in session with us, but we are consulting with the caregiver um, either before session, at the end of session, sometimes in between sessions. We have caregiver sessions sometimes that are just with the caregivers without the child there so that we can kind of make sure that we are totally supporting the child. You know, I remind caregivers, I get one hour a week. That's not very much time. So my hope <laughs> I is I would that love to give you all the time you want. Right, we'll come every right. day. I would love it too. Some of my kids, but we try to work that out, but we get, we get one hour a week, you know, and during that time, you know, therapy is very focused. I'm doing as much as the child can kind of handle that they can keep up with. I'm giving them tools. I'm giving them support. I mean, giving them encouragement, but that all has to go somewhere when they leave the office and we need our caregivers. We need our school to kind of continue when caregivers can also tell us what's going on at school. They can talk about behavior challenges at school and even connect us with school staff and personnel that helps us all again, kind of that multidisciplinary team approach where Mm -hmm. we can all be on the same page to support the child. Hashtag team child. Exactly. Can you, Give me a word that you think people would use to describe foster care. Safe is the word that comes to my mind for a lot of these kids, even if they don't recognize it. Foster care represents a place of safety, of being somewhere where they're going to have their needs met. They're going to be met with acceptance and care just because that's how it's set up. What would surprise most people to learn about therapy? Getting back to that idea of therapy's not witchcraft, it's not magic. You go in, you work hard, you learn skills, and then you use them. You use them in the real world. And you start noticing how you feel differently, how your relationships are different, how people respond to you differently. And then you get to share that back with your therapist. And then that gets, you know, reinforced as, yes, that was awesome. It gets encouraged. And that it's really hard work. I think people sometimes forget that, that, you know, it's hard work and we can only work as hard as our clients. We can't work harder at this than they are. And for some of my parents, I use that analogy of, you know, kids are not broken toasters. I'm not a repair person. You know, I'm here to be with your child on their journey. I'm here to give them skills, but I'm not a repair person and your child is not a broken toaster. What is your self-care routine? So there's daily things I do to find balance in my life. I enjoy being outside. I enjoy jogging, although I'm working at getting better at that. I enjoy time with my family. So my, my clients and people know they have after hours numbers for emergencies, things like that. But when I'm done with my work day, which I have a pretty long work day. I'm done. So I have a lot of family time. Um, my husband and I try to schedule date nights and things like that to go out and have fun. But then I would say one of the trainings that I did in this last year that I thought was incredibly helpful that I have tried to encourage in, in our staff is the idea that being able to manage secondary trauma and things and, and what we do on the job to help sustain us to be really sustainable as a trauma therapist. It's not about self-care. It's not about the bubble bath 
it's not about taking walks. It's about making sure that we're finding meaning even in the hard stuff. So one of the things that it's Dr. Brian Miller through the C-Cert that he kind of talks about, one of the practices is to basically come up with a narrative of why do you do what you do and making it as raw and as real as possible, acknowledging that there are hard days, that it doesn't always feel good, that you don't always get the appreciation that you really deserve for what you're doing, but that there is a commitment to doing this work because you believe it matters and because you believe that you matter in doing the work. So I feel like that's something that I've had my clients do when they've struggled, but I also have kept my own little note card of, you know, my narrative of why I do what I do. And that has done a lot to help me reframe the challenging moments to see that today is a tough day, but not every day is a tough day. And tough days sometimes are moments of growth. What do you think the community could do to prevent more kids from needing to come into care? As a trauma therapist, I obviously have to advocate that we have trauma therapy available to more people. I think specialized trauma therapy services is really important. At the community level, a lot of people are going into community mental health agencies looking for therapy and getting individualized therapy, Um, but having clinicians that are experienced enough and knowledgeable enough to recognize trauma, to know how to treat trauma so that we are helping parents before children even have to encounter child protective services. Uh, Like we talked about, there's, there's generations of these patterns. And if we can help break some of those patterns in our parents before we have to treat the children, I think that would be a great service to our community. When you were talking earlier, I was thinking about this book I read called Homegoing. It's nonfiction, but it goes back like 200 years of slavery, basically. And that sounds like a long time, but what I, it's horrible to read. But I feel like it's necessary, you know. The book is beautifully written. She's a wonderful author. Um, and I would recommend it to anybody. But the thing that impacted me the most was how short 200 years is. How short that is. And how that's only a few generations, actually. Right. It's very few generations. And how, of course, we are where we are. Because we've only been parented so little in that time. You don't just start over with every new generation of people. You're impacted by... Your parents and their grandparents and their parents and their grandparents and their and that's only a few lifespans and you're impacted by all the ways that they were hurt and it was incredibly impactful to me because you know just three generations is you know 100 years ish maybe that might be four generations but that's just numbers but it the book made it really 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 impactful to me and so I, I would definitely recommend it but um I would agree with you because that trauma I mean it can linger for a hundred years you know And so much of that shows up in attachment. And I know you guys have talked about attachment on other episodes. You know, when children are experiencing some of these harms or hurts at such a young age, it disrupts their attachment. It disrupts their ability to feel safe inside of a relationship with the people that they are supposed to be, you know, safe with. When those things are not properly addressed, people engage in a lot of unsafe relationships or they perpetuate certain behaviors that they saw or experienced. And then we are bringing into it other generations of kids who are then experiencing that not safe relationship with their parent or that sometimes safe relationship with their parent and then are having their own attachment problems. And those are the things that take, you know, sometimes a lifetime to treat. Adults still grieving, you know, the harms of their early childhoods. What are your goals to make positive change in our community? Part of it, I think, is just continuing to do the work to 
This is important. That's fun stuff, right? Yeah. The exclamation yeah. point. Ignore the sound guys in the back. They just get really excited for good answers. Exactly. I think it's important that we have people that are still doing this work. Um, you know, I'm trying to do enough self-care and have enough support that I can keep doing this work for more years. And I think being able to recruit new clinicians as they're coming out of school to be able to intern at agencies, especially we have interns at our agencies and we do hire new clinicians and then basically do a lot of training with them so that they can be up to that level of being specialized trauma therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think just advocating, I've thought about at times being able to do some guardian ad litem work. Um, eventually, if I was to uh, move into a different area or even foster and adopt myself, obviously, because there's such a need. Yeah. There's such a need. I know. Well, thank you for coming today. Yes, we are so, so blessed to have you here and so nice. share with us. It's thank been a pleasure. You. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.